Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. All right, let's do, 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 do it. Oh, waiting for me. I need to stop, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Last episode of the season, we'll get there. Hello and welcome to Chicks 3, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. I'm Annie and that's Phoebe. Hello, it is me. It is you. Hello. It is us. <laughs> <laughs> you tell us like the day. <laughs> nice. nice, I like it. It is me, it is you, it uh, is us. I am good with the English speaking. We are very good with the words and the putting together of the words. Has the um, holiday shine worn off? Oh, yeah, it's totally back to reality. Yeah, there's just, it's all, it's coming at me at all angles, but that's okay. Do you get busier coming into Christmas because everybody Uh, wants their family trees done? Yes, yes and no. There's a few, oh, can we have this done by Christmas? Um, Because, you know, with a lot of places, it's like this invisible deadline for Christmas and some of it, yes, but. I also have this deadline I put on myself, like I want to get it wrapped up by the end of the year. At the end of the day, as I say to some clients, your ancestors aren't getting any deader. They're going to be there in the new year. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> That's so true. I like it. Actually, I was uh, doing some work for someone today and something that I thought might interest you all listening, mm. their ancestor, oh many, many, many generations beforehand, um, the surname is Manger, M-A-N-G-E-R. I thought, oh, that's mm. an unusual surname. And they thought, you know, it could have been Ma along the way and that sort of thing, and it's changed. But it turns out that one of their forebears had been a foundling baby and left at a manger at a oh. church, and that's how they've got their name because quite often the baby would be given the name of the location where they were found because there was no other identifying um, documents. I've got a bit of a recommendation. I've watched a documentary called The Telemarketers and it is brilliant. I've heard about uh, this. Yeah, two two men who worked in a telemarketer organisation who in America, they were, and it was back in kind of the late 90s and it was the first kind of start of telemarketing and that sort of becoming popular. And they, you know, were just two employees and one of them just started filming a lot of stuff that they were doing because he was, you know, the place was, they, they would employ a lot of people who had issues, you know, drug issues. They may have come out of prison. So they were giving these people, you know, a second chance, which is great. But, you know, there are people doing drugs in the office. There were, you know, people drinking beers while they're on calls. Like it was, a, you know, it was, it was loose. And they end up kind of getting to the bottom of what they're actually doing because they didn't really question that they were calling these people to ask for money on behalf of these charities. So they started looking into it, you know, more into the charities and who the charities were and where the money's going and how much of the money's going to the actual charities and they uncover 
quite a lot of uh, criminal activity, let's mm-hmm. just say, and they are not documentary filmmakers, but it is it is so endearing because they actually think they are. They get to a point where they're like, one of the guys is like, I'm, I'm kind of like Michael Moore. Like we're going to go and Michael Moore the shit out of that. And, you know, they want to, they rock up to people's buildings and demand to speak to people and just want to have an interview with the senator and the this and the, you know, so it's, um yeah, it's really good, really entertaining and, and, a, and a good story because they do, the little guys, you know, mm-hmm. do uncover the, the what the big guys are, are doing. So Excellent. highly recommend. Anyway, talk, um, actually, yes, a book, Reco, another one, called The Historical Fiction. It's called The Book of Lost Names by Kirsten Harmel. She's written quite a number of historical fiction books set yes. in the Second World War, uh-huh. and it's about um, the French resistance and trying to move Jews out of France during the Second World War and them keeping this book of the names of children so that these kids would always have an identity. It's really, oh, like it's hard. It's hard reading and it is fiction. But, yeah, really it was a hard recommend, that one. It's been out for a few years. It's not a new book. But, um, yes, if you're into that sort of thing. So do you have a historical fact for us today? I do. Now, this is a little bit of a trigger warning, I suppose, but a few weeks ago I touched on the subject of baby farming. We were talking about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've done quite a bit of work and research into this sphere over the years, and it's a really troubling part of history, but I thought I'd tell you a little bit about it. Um, Essentially, baby farming was a practice which was quite prevalent in the 19th and the early parts of the 20th century in Britain, but also um, had had stems, I suppose, in Australia and America. And it was a woman or sometimes a couple would take a child or an infant into their care in exchange for payment. So the mother of the child would usually be unwed or suffering from financial hardship and would entrust their child into the care of these people and then have the opportunity to visit the child before she could financially afford to resume the care of the baby or to marry and then take Mm. the child back. Mm -hmm. So it was also a viable option for women who had few, if any, childcare options who were required to work. So that was difficult in itself at this point in time. It's quite difficult now, I hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So essentially this system was private, uh, a for-profit foster care arrangement, some of which benefited the children whilst others did not. And there was no regulation and no government assistance and they had refused to establish a foundling hospital, which you might find in the UK, which essentially mm. meant poor and, un- and unmarried women had few alternatives. So there were these people that took in children and cared for them and looked after them well, but then there were the others who were purely in it for the money. The more sinister mm. occasions where women or couples took in these children, took the payment, and then the worst quite often happened to the child, they died. Yet they kept accepting the money from the mothers who would continuously request to visit their child, only to be told that they were unwell and couldn't be seen or they'd been taken out for a walk, but were in fact usually dead. So Mm. baby farmers were those who neglected infants or sometimes outright killed them, which happened. And many of the babies died in their care and there were rumours of neglect, unsanitary conditions and slow starvation. 
So it's mm. a sad and sordid part of history, but one which is fairly prominent for for a time and garnered lots of press, which essentially contributed to public anxiety. Two mm. horrific examples, which I thought I would explain because it's a bit written about oh, these please. people. I <laughs> know, keep going. Do. <laughs> there was a couple called John and Sarah Macon from Sydney who answered newspaper advertisements from unmarried mothers seeking adoption. Then they'd take on the care of their children for a premium so a large payment. Um, and then for the Makins, the remains of at least 15 infants were found buried in the backyards of houses they had occupied during the late 19th century. So John was hanged uh, and Sarah served out, I think, 18 years and in prison mm-hmm. and was released in about 1911. Uh, and then in Victoria, one of the most prolific baby farmers was Frances Knorr who was uh, notorious, and in 1893 she was convicted of the murder of an infant in her care. Later after that, bodies of several children were found buried in the backyards of houses she'd also rented. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So it's pretty dark, but as I said, you know, women didn't have a choice. And they, they, you didn't expect for your child to die going into the care of these Mm. people because quite often they would be mothers themselves, maybe with older children, or they would uh, claim to be nurses as well. So they had, it was supposedly had a good reputation. Kind of like foster foster parents. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there was no regulation. And then Mm. for Victoria, at least. Uh, legal adoption didn't begin in Victoria until 1929. So anything before that, you'd become a state ward or you would go into this foster care system or you yeah. would be given to the neighbour or another family member or to someone like this who you thought was, you know, reputable. Oh, it's just devastating. Mm. Anyway, shall we get into it? Get into it. Let's Luck. get into it. Lucky last for the season. Ooh. Okay, today I'm going to tell you about a lady called Jessie Vassie. Jessie Mary Halbert was born in Roma in southeastern Queensland on the 19th of October 1897 and was the eldest of three daughters to Joseph Halbert, a farmer and grazier, and Jessie Dobbin. So Jessie the daughter, started her schooling in Brisbane before the family moved to Melbourne in 1911 when she then attended Lauriston Girls School and Methodist Ladies College. After secondary school, Jessie attended the University of Melbourne where she completed an arts degree with first-class honours. In 1921, at the age of 24 years old, Jessie Halbert married George Allen Vassy in Glenroy. George was a major in the Australian Armed Forces, and by the time the couple married, he'd already served on the Western Front during the First World War. The couple went on to have two sons, the first born in 1925 and another born in 1932. Jessie was an intelligent woman who loved literature and archaeology. However, there was never any reality that she would be able to put her university degree to use and go out to the workforce. She was confident and at ease with herself and others and was said to be an accomplished hostess something that would have been integral with the work her husband did. With Georgia's service with the army, the Vassies were required to move frequently. Not only did they move around Australia, but they spent two separate stints based in India, once from 1928 to 1929, and the second time from 1934 to 1937. Upon the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, 
The family had already returned to Victoria where they were living on a property in Wonturner. In December 1939, mere months after the declaration of war, Major General George Vassy sailed to the Middle East in his capacity with the Australian Armed Forces. With George gone, Jessie threw all her energy into the war effort on the home front, which included becoming involved in the Australian Comforts Fund. So by 1940, the Victorian branch of the Australian Comforts Fund had 22,000 female members who were responsible for providing parcels for the military forces and who gathered in church and municipal halls across the state. This voluntary work had no prerequisites other than time. Women enthusiastically held fundraisers for the forces or opened their homes as recreational office or accommodation facilities for the military. Jessie also served as secretary of the Australian Imperial Force Women's Association, a body which sought to help soldiers, wives and widows. Her work with the Volunteer Corps made her familiar with war widows' financial and emotional burdens, which moved her to try and rectify some of these obvious issues. Not only that, but George Vassy, who had served in Greece, Crete, and then later on the Kokoda track, was also well aware of the hardship that many war widows faced. He witnessed firsthand the plight of several war widows when he had visited a couple of widows of his men who had died. He was devastated by what he saw. One widow he visited was living in a rat-infested flat and he was left bereft. George was Jessie's biggest supporter and the night before he was to ship out for his deployment overseas, he told her to stick to the war widows and when I come back you shall have every atom of help I can give you. When the widow's pension was established in 1941, it was Commonwealth allowance that was introduced to enable widows with dependent children to stay at home and look after them rather than having to go out and work and keep the family from destitution. Mm, although a lot of them did, right? A lot of women mm. did go out and work. Like the the women just got on with it. They yeah. just got their shit together when the men were away. You they know? had no other choice. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So the pension was not available for unmarried mothers, de facto wives, and wives who had left their husbands. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the time of its introduction, the amount for the pension was a pittance and came with a number of other stipulations. Mm. Jessie had come across many women who had suffered the loss of their husband, the father of their children, and essentially their sole income earner. In a cruel twist of fate, George Vassy, on his return to join the troops in New Guinea following a hospital stay, was killed in a plane crash near Cairns in March 1945. It was then that Jessie came to know the grief, heartache and the hardship other war widows faced. Now her driving force was to help them overcome disadvantage and give them a voice. In October 1945, Jessie Vassy wrote to the Victorian War Widows urging them to attend a meeting to form a craft guild and about 300 women turned up. The following May, the War Widows Craft Guild held its first meeting with Jessie as president. This was the beginning of instigating the guild at a national level and she travelled extensively for the cause. Between 1946 and 1951, branches had been established in all the Australian states and territories except for the NT. Jessie realised that these women had to do something and not just sit around together and grieve and pat each other on the back, but to get busy, creative and constructive. The Guild was a... Yeah. It's the original craft noon. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. Mm. (laughs) The Guild was established to organise classes in various arts and crafts, which brought women together in a supportive environment and also created a sort of cottage industry, which essentially allowed women to sell their wares and supplement their incomes. 
Weaving was the first chosen craft as there was a post-war textile shortage and whilst it brought women together to craft, the activity could also be done at home while the children were at school or at night when they were in bed. Jessie's work did not stop there and with the War Widows Craft Guild well underway, in November 1947, she convened a conference which adopted a federal constitution and formed the War Widows Guild of Australia, of which she was elected its president. She travelled overseas to find inspiration from European counterparts to determine what they were doing and how Australia could help with their own war widows. The War Widows Guild was open to widows from both world wars and aimed to benefit members materially and to uphold uphold the memories of their men. Once Jessie had the War Widows Guild of Australia established and steadily running, she went about campaigning to have the War Widows pension increased. The pension that had been payable to former soldiers and their dependents had remained unchanged between 1920 to 1943. And during that time, the world had suffered from the aftermath of the First World War, post-war inflation, a worldwide economic depression, and they were now in the grips of the Second World War. Mm, yeah. In 1943, the war pensioners were granted an increase. However, the amount paid to the war widows remained only slightly more than half of the basic wage. So when it was first introduced, the pension was set to one pounds two one pound two shillings a week, which was the equivalent of about eighty five dollars to in today's mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even get you half your Nothing. groceries these days. No, I was going to say, like, what? what are you <laughs> Three doing bananas now? and a lemon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At the end of the Second World War, the world was again faced with post-war inflation, and war widows were suffering from severe financial distress. In 1947, largely due to Jessie's efforts, those pensions were increased. But this did not come without a fight. Jessie lobbied politicians and organised rallies to have the war widow's pension increased to the basic wage. So the basic wage, which was there to support most women. Um, So not only themselves, but most of them had dependent children as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For many, there was also a stigma around collecting the pension. Women had to go to the post office and have the money handed to them over the counter, which made many feel like a charity case. Jessie argued Mm. that the pension was not a charity, but a statutory right, being the compensation for the life of a serviceman. It is amazing that servicemen were held in such high regard during the war years, and they still are, and that Mm. those who lost their lives in the battle were remembered as heroes and commemorated. But then those who suffered from what we know as things like PTSD were belittled and degraded. Those who returned with war wounds were looked upon with pity. And then those who were left behind, the women and children, were tarred with a brush of disdain who many believed were not entitled to any further assistance. God, awful. I know. Their loved ones had made the ultimate sacrifice for their country and now they were paying the price of loss and being made to feel consequences in financial hardship, insecurity and many facing homelessness. These men no longer had a voice and these women sure as hell didn't have one either. As Jessie increased her lobbying, she faced tension from Legacy, who we know today, Legacy is still around, whose aim was to merely supplement the widow's incomes rather than to promote their economic dependence. So that was Jessie's ultimate goal. So these women actually had, you know, independence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So remember too that for women who had small children, as I mentioned before, obtaining childcare was difficult and costly and much of the work available to women was either done from the home, such as washing and mending, 
or they were in factories working long and arduous hours and sometimes doing quite dangerous work. Much of the work was not conducive to caring for their children, which in the eyes of the world was the worst thing that a woman could possibly do was to go out and get paid work and not be at home caring for their children. So it was a lose-lose situation. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine that. Imagine having losing your husband in war, having children, having no money, and then going and working a factory job mm. for like hours and hours and hours yep. and then having yep. to deal with the stigma of you're not a good mum because you're working. That's like, right. And, you know, a majority situation. of yeah, majority of women would have been rent or families would have been renters as well. So it's you're having to find yeah. the money not just for keeping food on the table but was also yeah. paying rent and all those other amenities. I'll never complain again. I know. In May 1947, the government announced an increase in the widow's pension of five shillings a week. So at the time, that's about the equivalent of 50 cents, right? Or about $17.90 in today's money. So this was far short of what Jessie was asking for. It was at the same time that this announcement was made that parliamentary salaries were significantly increased. (laughs) Shocker. So this um, parliamentary parliamentary increase essentially helped to mobilise public opinion and as such, Jessie held a lunchtime rally at Melbourne Town Hall, which attracted more than 3,000 war widows. Go, Jessie, Mm. yes. As a result of this demonstration, Claude Bernard, the Minister for Repatriation, agreed to meet with a representative of the War Widows Guild but was only prepared to discuss anomalies in the educational and medical benefits to which war widows may have been entitled. He was also willing to take a look at the situation for widows with children, but not those without. So nothing about financial compensation. The delightful Mr Bernard was reported as saying, many of these flappers married these men in a hurry and a lot of them hoped they would never come back. Oh, my God. Doesn't he sound like a top bloke? What a dickhead. Mm. So Prime Minister Ben Chifley tried to defuse the situation by claiming that Claude was misunderstood. Poor old Claude. (laughs) He's just a simple man. You wouldn't understand, would you? However, they still refused to budge on the increase of the payment but allowed two concessions. War widows with tuberculosis were now allowed to seek treatment at repatriation hospitals and a crude leave owed to dead soldiers could be paid to their widows. Jessie and her fight faced another setback when a clause was introduced into the Repatriation Act which stated that a pension could be refused or terminated if the board felt that the grant or continuance was undesirable. So some of these undesirable traits included um, that any widow who remarried would have their payment terminated and any widow suspected of having an affair or living in sin would also have their payment cancelled. So I'm not sure how you have an affair if your husband's dead. Just, yeah. just, just saying. saying. <laughs> if that's what they're calling it. Yeah. It, it's an yep. affair because mm. your husband's dead and you should be married not till death do you part, apparently. Exactly. For, for what's that word that means forever? In perpetuity. For- in perpetuity. Mm, yeah. So to oh. Jesse, these stipulations were an intolerable, intolerable intrusion on the privacy of war widows, stripping them of their dignity even further. Mm, Jesse and I know, like, how is it affecting you, people? I know, I know. 
Jesse and Claude Bernard publicly clashed over these inclusions between May and September 1949, and ultimately the offending clauses were removed from the Act thanks to Jesse's tenacity and advocacy. Oh, again, legend. I know. However, there was still a way to go. But as her fight for equal payments and independence went on, Jessie embarked on another project, which was even more ambitious. She was aware that many widows who were elderly and or ill were unable to find adequate accommodation. At this, she decided to provide housing for them. In the 1950s, the War Widows Guild of Australia proposed a national housing scheme to build self-contained flats for aged widows. Jessie started the housing with £1,000, which the Guild had made from a raffle, And in 1954, the Menzies government passed the Aged Persons Homes Act, whereby the Commonwealth government matched funds raised by voluntary agencies to help provide housing. The Guild formed a company known as the Vassy Housing Auxiliary, with Jessie as its managing director. And in Victoria alone, by 1965, 250 war widows were being accommodated by the scheme established under Jessie's hard-fought action. By the mid-1980s, the Vassy Housing Auxiliary's nationwide housing estate was valued at $60 million, and from those initial funds, so that £1,000, where they were able to purchase a house in Brisbane, the Guild is now estimated to be a $100 million enterprise. Wow. It's still still going. Unbelievable. Mm. Jessie went to great lengths to advocate for war widows, from physical labour to honing her intellectual arguments. There is one story from her biography when a kindly, if patronising, politician said to her, but dear lady, why would widows need to organise at all? Jessie replied that these women believed in self-help. The politician responded by saying, but we'll do it for you. Oh, will you? <laughs> to yeah, which, will yeah, you? Will you? To which mm. Jessie retorted, and what qualifies you to decide what women need? Just as returned men understand each other's problems, so do war widows. Only a widow knows what a widow feels. Yes. Mm. This politician looked unconvinced, so Jessie added, I happen to know that you can't even get along with your own wife. <laughs> I love it. Just, yeah. yeah. I know. Just hit her where it hurts. Exactly. (laughs) So in later years, she said she realised it was a bit of a wicked retort, but that at the time she had realised that not all men, even returned men, saw the widow's plight as her own husband had recognised it. In the early 1960s, Jessie was diagnosed with leukaemia. However, despite this diagnosis, she was still determined to continue her work and never stopped her fight on behalf of others. In recognition of her work, Jessie Vassy was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire, that's her an OBE, in 1950, yeah. and then a commander of the British Empire of CBE in 1963 for her services to war widows. Jessie was said to have a sharp wit and compelling character which commanded respect. She also had a love of large and eye-catching hats. Mm. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I know. Statement hat. Oh. <laughs> Jessie Mary Vassy died on the 22nd of September 1966 from cerebral thrombosis in Grafton, New South Wales. She had been returning to Melbourne from Queensland where she had been visiting Guild members when she died and she had remained the president of the War Widows Guild up until her death. Jessie was also inducted to the Victorian Honour Roll of Women, first in 2001 and again in 2008. So this Victorian Honour Roll was established in 2001 to recognise the achievements of women from Victoria and as of 2021, more than 600 women have been inducted onto the Honour Roll. So that's the story of Jessie Vassie. 
amazing. Mm. So her legacy so is good. still felt like it is just grown and grown because it then encompassed um, Vietnam War widows, yes. Afghanistan. Course. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's yeah. continued. And I hope also they introduced um, even not widows but men who had come back who do suffer from like PTSD and who are mm. unable to work or, you know, to get back into, integrate back into society and all of that you know, that maybe, you know, it helped those those families and women too because I think, yeah, the more we we acknowledged that that was a thing and that men were coming back suffering PTSD and women, um, you know, that, that, that there was help for, mm. for those people too, not just widows. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes. So good. It's and Jessie. you know what? If you want something done, women, just do it your fucking self. Exactly. That's the moral of that story. That's She's it. She's like, I'll just build the, I'll be, I, I, well, I'll just start a building company yeah. then and I'll just build these things that we need. Mm. So she her, did. yeah, she did. And she, one of her um, sons predeceased her, which was very sad. And obviously her husband oh. did. Um, and then her second son died in 2008, but she's got granddaughters that have since told her story. So I've only just come across her in the last week or so. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, this is fascinating because it all came about because of Remembrance Day. She was, um, she was oh, honoured yeah. and I thought, oh, Ooh. let me learn more. Well, that's it. We've done a whole other season. We have. We've another told you about 16. some incredible women. Another 16. Oh, I know. I know. And there's so many more chicks that we need to tell you about. There are so many more. So mm. many more. So we're going to go away. We're going to have a little lie down. We're going to have a little rest. We're going to have some cocktails. going to have I'm, a little break. I'm just here nodding. Clearly, you can all see me. Nodding, and we will be back in the new year, twenty twenty four. But keep an eye on the socials. You know, like, subscribe, follow, and you'll yeah. get the updates wherever you get your podcasts. Exactly, and if you know you're new to the podcast and you're like, oh, but I've just this is like the first episode I've listened to go back and listen to all of like the back catalogue because you don't, you can just dip in and dip out. Mm -hmm. You can just choose someone you want to listen to. Stories don't carry over. Listen, you get one story in and out. And then, um, yeah, you, you'll have, you'll have, you know, new, new stories about chicks in history that you can tell people at the Christmas barbecues. Thanks okay. for listening. Thank you for thanks, listening. Thanks to you, Phoebes, thanks for being to an you. amazing co-host back at your sister see you guys bye bye